doing a, a great job filling in with Cody being gone this week on vacation. You know, a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning, I, it may have been last week, may have been the week before, I made a joke at Doug's expense about him being my minion. Uh, and it's not because he's short and yellow and speaks in gibberish, although there are times when the gibberish part may be true. Uh, but in reality, uh, even though uh, I, I've made that, that joke, the truth is that Doug and Cody and uh, really the rest of our staff, support staff and others, do an awesome job at what they do, and we're so blessed to have them. And, uh, and you talk about a, a talented staff. We've got a multi-talented staff that can do a lot of different things and excel in a lot of different areas, and they're able to serve and minister in, in a lot of different places because of that. And, and God has just been very good to our church and blessing us with the staff that he's given us. We're excited, of course, about the Duncans. If you were here last week, you got to meet Brad and Jamie Duncan, who accepted the call from our church to be on staff. And so Brad will be joining us in a matter of a few weeks, and they're working to sell their home and all of that, so we want you to pray for them. And I just wanted to say that about him this morning, all right? Uh, we need to take a minute now and dismiss all of our kids to head upstairs for kids' crew worship. So we're going to dismiss our children and our leadership to go upstairs and uh, be a part of our kids' crew worship. This is for children who are sixth grade and under, a time of worship that we have for them each Sunday, and so they're excited for that. We look forward to uh, this each week. I say we because in my family, we've got three that are there, and in a matter of just a few weeks, we'll bring in the fourth of our troops, and so it's going to be no time at all, and uh, all of the Butler kids will be up there in kids' crew worship, and so we're, uh, we, and I'm speaking for my family there, we believe in that and, and love it each week. So uh, I also want to just say a big word of thanks to all of our leaders who invest and are a part of that ministry. We have an outstanding group of leadership who pour into our children, our preschoolers, our teenagers, and with things that are coming this week even with Children's Camp and the following week with Falls Creek for our youth, it's just a reminder again of the awesome people at First Baptist Church who commit to invest in the lives of our young people. And while I'm kind of on a roll here and building steam about that, let me also tell you about something else that I want to make you aware of because it's going to be a part of how we do the invitation today. In front of me here on the platform, depending on where you are, you may or may not be able to see this, but there are a bunch of these uh, arm bracelets. And, and this week as we leave for children's camp, we've got nearly 50 people going to children's camp at Cross Timbers this week, and we've got arm bracelets, pr prayer bands here for everyone who's going to camp so that if you would like to get one of these during the invitation and put that on and wear that this week as a reminder to pray for that person, you can do that. So as you come forward, you'll see these are, are laid out here on the stage. And as a part of our invitation today, we're going to encourage those of you that feel led to come and take one of these armbands to commit to pray for that person and, and uh, even here at the altar this morning in the invitation to do that. So these are laid out here. There are blue ones for the campers, for the kids, and orange ones for the sponsors who are going this week, and so it'll be easy to identify who those are. So we want to encourage you to think about uh, grabbing one of those if you get the opportunity and to be able to pray for our campers as they head out. Next week, we'll do a similar thing with the group that are headed to Falls Creek because uh, we've got two of these camps back-to-back, -back and we're excited about all that's going to be happening these next few weeks 
with camp. All right, enough setup of all of those things. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3 this morning. We're working our way through a sermon series focused on the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And in these chapters, we find that there are a series of letters that are, are pieced together as a part of this book of Revelation. Each of these letters is addressed to a different church in Asia Minor, which would have be all of these are, are in the modern-day country of Turkey is where these would have been located. And so as we study our way through these different letters, what we're finding is that there are instruction for these churches, but also these letters continue to speak to us today because in many ways we can identify culturally uh, and in different ways. We can identify with what's going on in our world in many ways to things, parallels that we see were happening into the situation, the day and the time in which these things were Written And so uh, it's, it's important for us to study these in context because the context helps us to make sense of what was being said then, but it also helps us to identify with the parallels between the context of today. So studying the context and the background of what was happening in these different churches in the time in which these were written helps us to see that there are many ways that we can identify with and, and even continue to learn from the words spoken to these churches, and of course, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's exactly how it's supposed to work, right? It was, these were real letters written to real people in real churches, but through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they continue to speak to us in our lives with divine authority even today. And that's, of course, why we want to study these for the lessons that we can learn from them. So I pray that that will happen this morning in our study to the letter written to the church at Sardis. This is now the fifth of the seven letters that we are, have, have studied through, and, and we'll continue, of course, until we've made it through all seven of these, but the fifth in a series of these letters. And so I want to begin reading in Revelation chapter 3 this morning, starting in verse 1. We've just moved into Revelation 3. The last four letters were a part of Revelation chapter 2, and we'll read the first six verses of Revelation 3 this morning with the letter that is addressed to the church at Sardis. And so John gives us these words, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write. Now, pause there just to say, this is, this is written to the church in Sardis. We've talked all along about each one of these letters bears this familiar address. There's an introduction to each of the letters that says, to the angel of the church in whatever the name of the city is, write these things. And so John is telling a vision that is given to him by Jesus. He's speaking the words of Jesus to these churches and to the, the angel of the church in Sardis is this familiar address. It's the way that, that Jesus is addressing the leaders of these churches. The, the word that is translated to mean angel also is translated in English to mean both angel and messenger. And so there's some debate whether this was written to the messengers of the church in Sardis, is this written to the angel of the church in Sardis? In any case, the, clearly when we study the context, this is a word for the people of the church in Sardis that is to be delivered to them as a word from Jesus himself. And so Jesus speaks this word of authority to the church in Sardis. Again in verse one, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's a reference to Jesus taken from Revelation chapter one. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. 
Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. And if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his, uh, rather, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, as John relates the, the word that is given to him through this revelation, this vision that he's having, he speaks these words from Jesus written to the church at Sardis, but they continue to speak to us. But in, of course, in order to understand how and in what ways this continues to apply to us in, in the context of, of today, it's important that we go back and we understand and study the context of which it was first given. And, and so we learn some about the church at Sardis. And so uh, I have a map that I want to show you on the screens this morning that will let you see where the city of Sardis was located in relation to the other churches and, and even still in the modern day. This is along the westernmost border of the modern day country of Turkey along the Aegean Sea to the north and the west would be the country of Greece. Of course, we've all heard about Greece lately because uh, they're in a mess of sorts right now. Greece is a very ancient country in the sense that, not, not in, in its current form necessarily, but in the sense that uh, Greece has existed uh, as a nation for many, many, many centuries. And, and so Greece was even at one point in time, prior to the time of the New Testament writing, Greece was a dominant world power. You probably all heard of Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great conquered the, much of the known world during his lifetime and ruled under the banner of Greece until the Romans replaced him, and, and we would say maybe in many ways uh, superseded him because their power was even greater than the power that Alexander had known in the Greece uh, era in, in the area of the, what was called the Hellenists. That was the way that they described themselves. And so during the time that these letters are being written toward the end of the first century, so in the 90s AD, you find that many of these cities in this region that used to be a part of the Greek, uh, really the, the center of the, of the Greek world and, and the Greek kingdom, now have taken on new significance under Roman rule. But Sardis happens to be a city that didn't thrive and flourish under Roman rule as much as the other cities that we've talked about. So there is a, there is a, a road, it's actually a postal route that connected these different cities, and it just so happens to follow the same sequence to which these letters are written. So we began first with studying the letter to the church at Ephesus, then the church in Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and now Sardis. And there's a road connecting these cities that starts from Ephesus, and first you travel north, and then at Pergamum, you see you begin to turn to the east, the southeast, and along that same road into Sardis. Next, it will go toward Philadelphia and then Laodicea. That same road continues on into, uh, into the Persian, the, what, the remnants of the Persian Empire, and, and it was along that same road toward Persia or the modern-day countries of Iran and Iraq that, that the world of east and west sort of met. Uh, and, and so... These cities were all significant cities because of their connection to uh, both travel and military movement between the East and Western world. 
And so they were significant each in their, in their own way. But Sardis in particular is a city that we find flourished in the time before Roman conquest, but then under conquest of the Romans and, and successively over time, begins to diminish somewhat in, in its importance. Originally, Sardis was the capital of the ancient kingdom Lydia. And Lydia, much of what you see here, in fact, really everything that you would see in white would have been a part of this ancient kingdom of Lydia that even predates Greek power. And so the Persians were the ones that conquered the Lydians in the mid, uh, in the mid-5th century BC. And so from that point forward, slowly over time, Sardis begins to uh, lessen in terms of its overall significance and even affluence. But in its heyday, Sardis was a wealthy city. In fact, part of Sardis's wealth was derived from the fact that it was in the city of Sardis where metallurgists first learned how they could refine and purify gold by separating gold from other metals, gold and sil- silver, to arrive at a very pure form of gold that they could then mint into coins. And so in Sardis, they first minted these gold and silver coins, which later became sort of the the precursor to our modern currency, forms of currency that we still use to this day. And they, they derived great wealth from this discovery, from learning to do this and, and the ability to mint these gold and silver coins. Not only that, but uh, many have said that Sardis was the sort of the birthplace where they learned to dye wool. So it was in Sardis, whether or not it was actually discovered there, it was in the city of Sardis where they first learned how to dye wool and other textiles. You've all heard of uh, Persian rugs before, right? You, you've heard of a Persian rug or even maybe perhaps of a Turkish rug. We think of their tapestries, their woven rugs. Those were a significant part of their culture. Even to this day, they can be very expensive and very elaborate. And a lot of that was birthed in the city of Sardis where they first learned to dye wool and then they would weave it together, making not only clothes but rugs and other, uh, other forms of, of textiles as well that could be traded and sold the picture that you see here is of the ruins of at least a portion of the ancient city of Sardis. Now, in the distance, in the background, you see a hill. Originally, the city of Sardis was established on this high hill. In fact, it was, it's really a mountain, and the, the name of this mountain is Mount Tamalus. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly because it's spelled uh, weird, T-M-O-L-U-S, and so I may or may not be pronouncing that right, but this ancient mountain on top of this mountain, which r- rises some 1,500 feet above the plain below, there was a fortress, a citadel, where they built the original city of Sardis. You can, of course, tell that eventually they would have run out of real estate, and so as they, as they became sort of landlocked on top of this mountain, the city itself spilled out into the valley below this mountain. But the city on top of the mountain was really in many ways an impregnable and impenetrable fortress because it was surrounded on three sides by these sheer rock cliffs. And then there were these massive walls of stone that were built on top of these rock cliffs so that there was only one way to approach the city. And so it made the city very easy to defend and also very difficult to conquer. And so 
course, the, the ancient city grew up and became sort of this, this impenetrable fortress of sorts. And so anytime someone would threaten to attack, the people of Sardis, especially those that lived in the valley, would retreat to the citadel, the fortress on top of the mountain, and they would be able to wall themselves in and defend themselves easily from their attackers. They could, they could last for a long time. In fact, because of these rock cliffs, it was very difficult to, to siege the city, and you can make some of that out. The next, the next picture actually shows an artist's rendering of what the city would have looked like in ancient days with the city that had spilled out into the valley below. You see the wall on the right-hand side of the screen. You see a, a wall that, that uh, it borders along the side of this hill and leads up to the entrance to the fortress that rests on the city. And notice along along the face of the mountain that you see in the background, the sheer rock cliffs. And so the city of Sardis was a very strategic and important military city. It was the capital of the Lydian kingdom until it was conquered by the Persians in 495 BC. I want to read this to you from a book that I have. I've been using several different sources for background and study on these cities and these uh, these churches for these seven letters. But I want to read to you what one uh, scholar writes about the, the city of Sardis itself. He writes, Despite an alleged warning against self-satisfaction by the Greek god whom he consulted, Croesus, the king of Lydia, initiated an attack against Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, if you, if you remember what we've learned in past history and our study through Nehemiah and, and other studies, the, the Persians were a dominant world power of their day. And Cyrus, who was the king of the Persians, considered himself to be the, the, the living God. He considered himself to be a deity. And he conquered, ruthlessly conquered, uh, much of the Middle East. In fact, really all of the Middle East extending into North Africa and even into the, the bridge along these lands into uh, modern-day Europe. And so... The king of the Lydians attacked Cyrus, king of Persia, but was soundly defeated. Returning to Sardis to recoup and rebuild his army for another attack, he was pursued quickly by Cyrus, who laid siege against Sardis. Croesus felt utterly secure in his impregnable situation atop the Acropolis. The Acropolis is like a mountaintop fortress or a high place there along the, the top of the the, the mountain, and he foresaw an easy victory over the Persians who were cornered among the perpendicular rocks in the lower city, an easy prey for the assembling Lydian army to crush. After retiring one evening while the drama was unfolding, he awakened to discover the Persians had gained control of the Acropolis by scaling one by one the steep walls, this is in four, uh, 549, excuse me, I mixed the numbers up a minute ago. I said 495, 549 B.C. So secure did the Sardians feel that they left this means of access completely unguarded, permitting the climbers to ascend unobserved. It is said that even a child could have defended the city from this kind of attack, but not so much as one observer had been appointed to watch the side that was believed to be inaccessible. And so the Sardians felt so confident that no one could attack their city that they didn't even post someone to watch along the side of these walls. And as history tells the story, 
the Persians observed one of the Sardians scale, climb the face, the sheer face of this rock wall and enter into the city through a secret access. And so one by one, the Persians climbed the wall and mounted there at the base of the wall for an attack. And then all they simply had to do was let themselves in the way to the city because the, the Sardians didn't post anyone there to guard it and they overran the city that way. It says that history repeated itself more than three and a half centuries later, when Antiochus the Great conquered Sardis by utilizing the services of a sure-footed mountain climber from Crete. His army entered the city by another route while the defenders in careless confidence were content to guard the one known approach, the isthmus of land connected to Mount Tmolus on the south. And so the idea is that the, the Sardians became so confident, overly confident of their, of, of their situation because they, they felt that they were secure within the walls of this high fortress, that they didn't even appoint someone to watch the walls, and they were easily conquered. This, this pattern of, of overconfidence, this pattern of thinking too much of themselves, seems to be embedded in some ways into the DNA of the people of Sardis, because it's actually a very similar type of situation that the writer that, that, that John here relates these words of Jesus to a church that has let down her guard, to a church who has left herself vulnerable because she has not decided to defend herself with the proper boundaries, with the proper protections against the onslaught of the world, of the culture around her. And so the Sardians gave in to cultural pressures. They gave in to the pressures of their day and ultimately through compromise and complacency, we find that Jesus has some very serious words to say against the church at Sardis. And so as has been our pattern all along, I want us to study what is said to this church in this letter using this familiar pattern that is used throughout these letters a commendation, a condemnation, a command, and a call. And so on the back of your worship guide this morning, there's a place where you can follow along and, and take notes as we go through this. First of all, as we look at the commendation that is written to the church at Sardis, it, it's really kind of a, in, in many ways, sort of a, uh, what I would say maybe a, a backhanded sort of commendation. In fact, there is no formal praise. Oftentimes in these letters is sort of the, the t- typical pattern that Jesus begins by saying, to the church, you have done this thing well. Before he tells them what they've done wrong and the ways that they need to make changes, he begins by saying, you have done these things, these certain things well, but I have this against you. But notice in this letter to the church at Sardis, he doesn't begin by praising them in any way. There is sort of a, an implied praise of sorts that he gives them, but, but it's not any open praise that he has for this church. So what I've kind of stated in your notes here for the the commendation, the praise, is this, is that the church at Sardis has a remnant, there are a few at least, who have remained faithful while the complacency of the majority of the church has led to compromise. Jesus says to the church, he says that there are still a few, right? That's what he says. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. The picture of garments that are soiled is the picture of impurity. In fact, 
in ancient culture, when a priest would go to make sacrifices, he had to wear garments that were pure. They couldn't be, they couldn't be blemished or soiled in any way. And oftentimes in, in the temple cult that existed around the Roman pantheon of gods, when someone would come to the temple, one of the many temples that they had, and they were to offer some kind of a sacrifice, they would wear pure garments, often dressed in pure white. And if there were any stains or any, any, any sort of uh, stains or soiling or dirt of any kind on their garments, they weren't allowed to go into the temple to offer their sacrifice. And so the, the picture of having garments that are soiled is a picture of impurity. And so what Jesus is saying is there are still a few of you in Sardis who have remained pure. There are a few of you who have not given in to the the overwhelming onslaught of, of the culture. There are a few of you who have not defiled yourselves by worshiping false gods and giving in to the pressures that are mounting against you. A few, he says, who have not soiled their garments. So if there's anything to be praised in Sardis, it's that there's a a remnant, a few, who have remained true. But he says this word of condemnation against them. He says, you are dead. Now, there is perhaps no worse rebuke that could be spoken against the church than this, right? That Jesus plainly says to the church, you are dead. In fact, the, the church at Sardis has fallen so far that Jesus pronounces them dead to say, you, you are dead and you need to wake up. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, he says, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. And so the condemnation against the church in Sardis, the rebuke, if you will, is that they are dead. Spiritually, they are dead. Now, there's not a lot of context here given specifically to the situation of Sardis. We don't know precisely how this happened. We don't know the exact events that unfolded that led to the compromise. But what we do know is this, in any rate, at the point that Jesus is speaking this word to the church at Sardis, they have given in to the point that there are no obvious signs of life in the church. And the call for them, the command, if you will, is that they would wake up. In fact, the the next step as we study commendation, condemnation, command is this, is that Jesus calls for those who are dead to wake up from their spiritual slumber. They are to wake up. And so he writes here these words of Jesus. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. He says, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You've not done everything that you could do. You've not done everything that you should do, right? And so their works are not complete. He says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And so the picture is that there, there is judgment coming for the church at Sardis that is dead, that they need to heed these words. They need to listen to these words, to wake up from their spiritual slumber. They need to repent of the sin that has led to their death, and they need to turn their hearts back to the Lord because there is a a sure judgment that is coming. Again, the picture here of Jesus saying that I come like a thief is a picture 
that, that connects to the very words that Jesus speaks in Matthew in the 24th chapter, speaking of the return of Christ when he says that, that Jesus would come like a thief in the night. And in actuality, throughout the New Testament, there, there's this, it is repeated again and again, this imagery of Jesus' return coming like a thief to catch those who were unaware. And so the point is to the church at Sardis, wake up. Repent of your sin. Return to the Lord. Go back to doing the things that you ought to be doing. Turn away from the way that you're living so that you would not be caught unaware at the moment Jesus returns. As I've been thinking about that this week and kind of reflecting on that word, I think that as much as anything is what we need to hear. That's the word that we both us in First Baptist Church of Chickasha, but even bigger that, than that in many ways, the, the church in America today, the word that we need to hear is that we would wake up from our spiritual slumber. I've heard it described before and, and, and even really in my own mind have felt this before, that the church in America is like a sleeping giant, right? That, that we're asleep in many ways and things are happening all around us in the world and the culture around us. And in many ways, we as the church seem content to just close our eyes and, and go on living as if things around us weren't falling apart. And, and in many ways, we have to take responsibility of the fact that, that a lot of what we see happening in the world is happening on our watch. That we bear responsibility for these things. And how could that happen, we would ask ourselves. Well, the truth is, the church is is dead, or, or maybe asleep. There tends to be sort of a, a kind of a mixed metaphor here of, of both of these things, and that's not unusual as well, because again, in the New Testament, we find that when they refer to someone dying, it's often that they would refer to them as, as being asleep. Those who have, uh, who have gone on, those who have fallen asleep, we find when Paul writes about those who have died in Christ, he refers to them as those who are asleep, that was kind of a, a normal euphemism in, in that day, in that time. Jesus himself, in Luke chapter 8, heals Jairus' daughter. And what was it that they said when they, when they came and they, and they fetched Jesus? When they said, Jesus, come quickly. Jairus' daughter is dead. Jesus is making his way to the house where Jairus' daughter was. And when they said, Jesus, come quickly, he was interrupted along the way by a woman who reached out to touch the hem of his garment. And later, word was sent from Jairus' house to, saying, to say to Jesus, it's too late. She's dead. The, little, the young girl is dead already. And what was Jesus' response? He says, take heart. She's not dead. She's merely asleep. And so Jesus continued on to Jairus' house. And he sent everyone outside. And he went in and he took the young girl by the hand. And he said, young girl, awake. And she sat up and she was awake. And I'm thinking about that this week and relating that to the idea of how the church in America is asleep in many ways, how, how we're spiritually dead in that sense, that we need to wake up, we need revival to shake us awake, to waken our hearts, to stir us up to what we ought to be doing, how we ought to be living, the things that we ought to be doing according to what the Word teaches us. And this is the encouragement that I have in thinking about that. It's easy to be discouraged when we think about things, but here's the word of encouragement that I want to speak into this situation that we find ourselves in this morning. Jesus has the power to raise dead things to life. 
He who raised himself from the dead, 1 Corinthians 1st, uh, chapter 15 rather tells us, he who conquered sin and death has the power to, to raise us to life. And so Jesus has the power to bring life to things that are dead, to breathe life into dry bones as we see happen in the book of, uh, the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. That, that he has the power to speak life into things that are dead. He raised Jairus' daughter, he raised others from the dead. The one who says to the church in Revelation chapter 3, wake up, is the same one who has the power to breathe life into the church. But what is it that the church must do in order to receive that life? What's the, it's exactly what Jesus says to them. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. We have to turn away from our sin, don't we? We have to turn away from We have to turn away from our compromise and our complacency. We have to commit ourselves to the truth of God's word above and beyond our experiences. Rather than reading our our experience and our desires into what God's word says, we have to allow it to be the authority that guides our lives, that, that sets the course for how we live. We need to wake up from our spiritual slumber. Finally, we see this, the call that is placed to this church, is that the one who perseveres in faithfulness, rather those who persevere, this is the way I've worded it in your note, those who persevere in faithfulness are promised salvation from the judgment waiting for those who compromise. In other words, there is a sure judgment coming for those who will not wake up, who will not repent, but those who will listen, those who will repent, those who will wake up Strengthen what remains. We'll find salvation from the judgment that God is bringing. And so the call for us is to wake up, to trust in God's promised salvation. So I want to make some points of application then, ways that this continues to speak to our lives. And and as I've done with each of these, really I've tried to word these in in such a way that it, it provides us with action steps, if you will. So the application, I've tried to word this in such a way that we can hear this and we can easily understand, what am I to do with this truth? How am I to take this and apply this to my life? The first point is this, is that we should live in such a way that our reputation will match with our reality. The word spoken against the church at Sardis is this, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So the reputation, the word on the street was that the church at Sardis was alive, but Jesus sees through their reputation to the matters of the heart, and he says, your reputation is that you're alive, but in, the truth, in truth, you're dead. You know, it's very possible for a church to appear alive and yet be dead, because we tend to judge a church oftentimes by things like how many people are attending or how much money is given or how big are their buildings or how many programs do they have or how much of a crowd is drawn, how much buzz do they garner on social media, you know, how talked about, how desired is the pastor of a congregation, is, do people want him to come and speak at events or, uh, you know, the other people on staff, how much are they asked, you know, what influence do they have beyond just their church. And we tend to judge a church on these kind of things. But as is always the case, Jesus sees beyond all of that to the heart. 
he sees beyond the reputation of the church at Sardis and says, you have the reputation of being alive, but the truth is, you're dead. Because he, he knows the matters of the heart. And the reality is, in our lives, there are quite possibly many of us that others would look at you and, and, and the others would say, yeah, that person, that person is, is alive spiritually. But in your heart of hearts, is there really, is there really a spiritual pulse there? Do you find yourself spiritually alive or spiritually dead? More importantly, what would Jesus say if he were to look beyond all of the, the outward show and to see truly where your heart is? We understand, of course, that he, he does see beyond the outward appearance. And so we want to live in such a way that our reputation will match our reality. In other words, it, it's a matter of spiritual integrity. The, the things that we want everyone else to think about us would be who we really are. And, and in fact, that we wouldn't focus so much on what everyone else thinks as much as we would focus on what's real. How am I really living? What am I really doing? Am I really the person that I want everyone else to think that I am? It's about living with spiritual integrity. And so we should live in such a way that our reputation matches our reality, first of all. Secondly is this. We ought to repent from complacency while there is still time. As I've mentioned already, in many ways, we have to take responsibility for the, the problems that we see in the culture today, particularly in regard to the church and the reputation that we have gained as the church and, and the, the breakdown, the dysfunction that we see in the life of church. And, and I don't mean to pin it on any one of us individually, but at the same time, we do need to feel personal responsibility because the reality is that what is happening on a systemic level amongst churches and denominations and congregations is really just a product of what's happening in the lives of the individuals that make up those churches and those denominations. That as a whole, as Christians, we have grown complacent. We care more about our creature comforts. We care more about a, a life of ease and luxury than we do living in a way that might be costly. And yet, all of the handwriting is on the wall that in the future, in in our culture, it will be costly to follow Christ. Costly in terms of our reputation, costly in terms of the commitment to stand with the truth of God's word, regardless of what the world around us may say, whether they accept it as right or wrong or otherwise. The call for us is that we would repent from complacency while there is still time. What is it that Jesus says? If you don't repent, then I will come like a thief. In other words, he will come when we are not ready, when we are unaware. I don't know about you, but when Jesus returns, I want to be ready. If it should happen in my lifetime, I want to be found ready. The way that we can be found ready is to live for him. So we ought to repent from complacency while there is still time. And finally this. We need to live according to the standard that God has set for us, not the standard set by the world around us. Though we don't know the specifics of the situation in Sardis that led to their compromise, certainly we, we can make a very educated, reasoned guess at what was happening and uh, imperial worship and other things 
that were taking over in Roman culture during this time and, and the pressures against Christians that were considered, in, in their day, Christians were actually considered atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman pantheon of gods and, and someone who was truly devoted to Christ wouldn't, wouldn't worship the emperor as God. They wouldn't offer sacrifices to the emperor. And so Christians were labeled as atheists and persecuted for that. Clearly what had to have happened over time is that they began to cave, they began to give in, they began to compromise. And whether it happened slowly over time or even if it perhaps happened all at once, whether it was the result of some false teaching that led them astray or whether it was just a matter of spiritual apathy and letting their guard down and and slowly making choices to sin, the end result was that ultimately the church at Sardis was spiritually dead because they had chosen to live according to the standards set by the world around them rather than setting, living by the standards set by God. And church, if we don't wake up, the very same thing will happen of us. We are maybe, maybe at best a few generations away in our country from a, a church that is so spiritually anemic that that you would say it's, it's dead. And, and I think many, many would agree that in, in many ways we could probably say we're on life support already. And, and I'm not just talking about First Baptist Chickasha. I'm talking about the, the church in America. And, and understand that when I, when I say that, I'm lumping all Christians, all genuine believers of Christ together in one basket. And that's hard to do. You have to make some some sort of broad generalizations when you do that. I understand that. But the point is this. We have to accept the personal responsibility that we have as individual believers to stand for what is right, to live according to the standard set by God's word and not to give in to the standard of the culture around us. In other words, the world doesn't decide what's right and what's wrong for you. The divine authority of God's word decides what's right and what's wrong for you. Your experience doesn't inform how you should live God's word informs how we ought to live. We need to wake up and we need to understand the situation set before us or else we will find ourselves in the very same place that the church in Sardis found herself. And so this morning, as we prepare for a time of response in in just a few minutes, a time of invitation, I pray that we would heed the call given to the church, that we would wake up, that we would repent, we would wake up from our our spiritual slumber, that we would do the things that we ought to, the things that we were called to, that we would follow the standard set for us by God's word and not just the standard set by the culture around us. And so in a moment when we stand and we sing a song of invitation, Our altar will be open, and I want to challenge you that if you sense today that God is leading you, that he is stirring you, that that it's time for you to wake up, that it's time for you to take a stand, that you would come forward and you would kneel in prayer, and that you would commit yourself to the Lord in this way. You would say, God, I want to make a stand for you. I know it will not be easy. I certainly know that it will not be convenient. In fact, it will very likely be costly, but I want to stand for you regardless, because I want to make my life count for your kingdom. Something along those lines in your own words, of course, 
You don't have to word it exactly like that, but you understand the, the point is that you would make that prayer of commitment. God, I'm committing myself to you, to stand for you, to live for you in the midst of the world around us. I also want to remind you that if you feel led to, I would encourage you to come and take one of these prayer bands and, and put that on your wrist so that you can pray for that individual this week. And then finally, I would say this. If today, if you would say, you know what? Spiritually, I find myself dead. I mean, if you would be honest enough to say, spiritually, I, I, I need revived. I need revival. Spiritually, I'm dead. Then would you be willing to come this morning? You can take me by the hand. You can pray here at our altar that, that you would be willing to humble yourself and pray for God to move in your heart, that he would bring revival that you would wake up from your spiritual slumber. And so I want to ask if you would to bow your head and close your eyes because I want you to be able to prepare yourself for this moment where we respond in just a moment. I want you to be able to prepare yourself for this, this time of invitation where you're invited to move as God leads you. And then as we begin to sing, I'll be here at the front ready to stand and pray with you, but I would invite you to come this morning and respond in obedience as God leads you.